We've now come to such a powerful and important truth taught in just a few short verses. Makes me think of that line from the Disney movie Aladdin. Maybe you remember the genie. He's describing his life. He says of himself, phenomenal cosmic power in an itsy-bitsy living space. Right? These verses are God's real phenomenal cosmic power to make the unrighteous righteous in an itsy-bitsy paragraph. Many see Romans 3, 21 through 26 as the most important verses in the book of Romans. Some even say that this is perhaps the most important paragraph in the Bible. It has even been said that these words are the most important paragraph that has ever been written by mankind. Amazing statement. So much truth, so much depth, so much power in just a few short verses. So great is the weight of importance. So vast is the value of its significance. So critical is the topic that it covers. It is our privilege this very morning to study these verses. So please open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. Follow along as I read verses 21 to 26. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Father, now we come to these amazing verses that you, through your Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to write so that we might have it now, all these years later, to learn and to understand you and your plan and your truth and salvation. Lord, today may your words teach us from your Spirit to the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, take a moment here with me and let's look at the text together. Last week, we covered verses 21 to 23. So if you look at those verses, do you remember the key word, that reoccurring key word that I used uh, kind of to pull those verses together, verses 21 to 23? What's the key word? Righteousness, right? You see it in there both times. Now we're in verses 24 and 25, 25a, the beginning of 25, and there are three key words here that Paul uses. 
And these words are all used to describe an important aspect of what salvation means. What happens at salvation? These three key words. Two of these words are in verse 24. What are those words? Justified and redemption. Justified and redemption. Then the third key word there is in the beginning of verse 25. What's that word? Propitiation. So in about 30 words here, Paul uses these incredibly loaded, deep, significant theological words, words that describe in detail and in depth the salvation that God has brought to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Justification, redemption, propitiation. Many books, multiple books, hundreds of books, commentaries, sermons have been written and spoken on the implications of just these three words. These three words take us into three different worlds. They take us into three different realms. Justification is a legal term, and it takes us into the courtroom. Redemption is a purchasing term, and it takes us into the slave market. And propitiation is a sacrificial term, and it takes us into the temple. Three different words, three different realms to illustrate for us the amazing power of God's salvation, the complete nature of God's salvation from the courtroom to the marketplace to the temple we aren't just saved we are completely and totally saved one of the truths that each of these terms have in common is that the action is all in one direction the action is all from god the work that is done in these terms is all God's work, along with what Paul has been teaching up to this point about the universal sinfulness of mankind, the universal inability of man to earn his own salvation. We're all under sin. There are none that are righteous. All of mankind stands accountable before God. He reiterates that truth in verse 23, right before this, saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are guilty, completely unable to save ourselves. It is God who is the one doing the action. One wrote, fundamental to the gospel of salvation is the truth that the saving initiative from beginning to end belongs to God. No formulation of the gospel is biblical which removes the initiative from God and attributes it to us. It is certain that we did not take the initiative we are sinful and guilty, condemned, helpless, and hopeless. So let's look at that first term. Let's look at that first part of verse 24. And we are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, without even getting into the meaning of the word justified, we know something very important about this term. It is by grace as a gift. 
Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is unearned. Grace is undeserved. Grace is God giving us simply on the basis of his own will and of his own love. Grace is totally and only the action of our God. And to make sure that we understand that how one is justified by God's unmerited grace, Paul kind of redundantly says as he describes being justified as a gift. See, a gift by definition is something that is freely given to another, not on the merit of earning it. It is totally unmerited. If you earned it, it's not a gift, it's a wage. But justification is given as a gift. Because you can't earn it. Justification is by grace, as a gift. All God, none of us. So what is justification? Here are some definitions. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God by which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Justification is God's action pronouncing sinners righteous in his sight. It's a matter of one being forgiven and declared to have fulfilled all of God's law's requirements. J.I. Packer said justification is God's fundamental act of blessing for it saves us from the past and secures us for the future. It consists on the one hand of the pardon of sin and the ending of our exposure to God's enmity and wrath through our reconciliation to him. And then on the other hand, it includes the bestowal of a righteous man's status and a title to all the blessings which God has promised to the just. The doctrine of justification by faith alone affirms the thorough going sinfulness of all persons, a total inability to deal effectively with their own sin and the gracious provisions through the death of Jesus Christ of a complete atonement for sin to which persons respond in simple trust without any special claims or merit of their own. Justification simply means that God has declared the sinner righteous through the provision of of Christ on the cross. Justify doesn't mean to make righteous, as in an ethical sense. Justification doesn't mean to treat as righteous, as though you're not really righteous, but it's to declare righteous as a legal reality of the utmost importance. It means to be acquitted by God of all charges that could be brought against us, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, many in our world want salvation. Many want salvation but they want it without the cross. But beloved, there is no salvation 
without the cross of Christ. There is no salvation without the substitutionary death and the powerful resurrection of Christ. There is no salvation without Jesus paying the penalty of our sin by taking God's wrath and judgment. There is no salvation unless the righteous one dies in the place of the unrighteous ones. There's no common ground where mankind can meet God except at the foot of the cross. No self-help, no gurus, no religion, no morality, no amount of good deeds can save anyone. Salvation is clear. It comes by faith alone, through grace, as a gift from God. Justification by faith in Jesus is the linking truth that connects us to God. Justification is a cooperation of three persons. All three willingly must do their part. Jesus willingly gave his life as an atonement, as a payment for our sins. We must respond in faith willingly, seeing ourselves as sinners alienated from God by our sins, in need of salvation, in need of a sacrifice in our place, a perfect substitute for our sins. And then God willingly accepts our faith and applies the righteous act of his Son to our account so that we become one, united with Christ. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Christ's righteousness is credited to us. It's applied to us so that we stand before God justified, legally declared, righteous, completely saved. So when God looks at us, what does he see? When God looks at a believer, what does he see? He sees righteousness. Not our righteousness, of course, but Christ's righteousness, credit to us. He sees a forgiven and accepted son or daughter. He sees his son's grace and mercy and love. When God looks at us, he no longer sees a sinner but a saint. He sees a redeemed, reconciled, declared righteous follower of Christ. Justification is a process by which God declares a sinner to be saved. How can a holy God declare a sinner to be saved? I mean, how can a perfect and holy God, pure in every way imaginable, pardon sinners? Our God is so holy. One of the main descriptions of Our God's character is that he is holy. Holy means separate, set apart. He's 100% separated, set apart from all sin. You see, with our God being full and complete holiness and righteousness, he must in his justice, he must in his holiness, in the separation from it all, judge it. God is never lenient on sin. His holy character demands that each and every sin must be dealt with. Sin is that real. Sin is that serious. That the very character of God demands justice. God in his holiness is the judge. God's holiness demands complete justice. As we've already seen over and over again in Romans, each human, everyone, for all time, have fallen short of God's glory. And each person will stand before God to to deal with the reality 
of our sin. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. God's holiness, God's justice, and our sinfulness leads to our judgment. But folks, that's not the end of the story. You know, God's character doesn't end in His holiness. Our God is full of grace and mercy and love, and He must, out of His character, love us, reach out to us, reach out to sinful man. Romans 3.26 says, God is not just the judge, He's not just just, but He's also the justifier. Because he is love, he proactively stepped into time and space to provide for us salvation through his son. For God so loved the world, for God so loved humanity, for God so loved you and me, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So how can God, this holy God, this God of justice, this God that condemns sin and punishes it. How can God at the same time, in his grace and in his mercy, reach out and love and forgive sin and redeem mankind? Do you see the answer? The explanation is justification. The answer is Jesus. See, only in Jesus could God's wrath and holiness be satisfied in his justice. And only in Jesus could God's grace and mercy come forth through his love and reconcile ourselves to him. It's only because of Jesus' death being placed on our account that God can look at me and declare me righteous. It's only because of Christ's death substituting for you and your sins can be placed on your account so that God can look at you and declare you righteous. Justification simply means that God has declared the sinner righteous through the provision of Christ on the cross. And how did he do that? By his grace, as a gift. What an amazing God. Well, now we move from the courtroom to the slave market, to this next great word of redemption. The second half of verse 24 says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a word of commerce taken from the marketplace. In its essence, it just simply means the purchase of something for a price. In the Old Testament, redemption carried with it the idea of deliverance. In Exodus 15, 13 It says that God redeemed Israel out of its bondage to Egypt. The great salvation that God brought about for the people of Israel from the Egyptians is described as redemption. This type of redemption is also used of God rescuing his people people from their Babylonian captivity in Isaiah 41, 43 verse 1 where it says God redeemed his people. He delivered them. What they could never do, God did, delivering his people, redeeming them from their captivity. This word redemption is also used in the Old and New Testament with the idea of the payment of a price to redeem, literally to ransom. The common use of this term in Paul's day was in the slave market. A payment 
a ransom was, was paid to purchase a slave's freedom. The price was paid and the slave was redeemed. This colorful words, a great description of the salvation we are given in Christ. First, we are delivered. We are under sin. We are under the captivity of sin. We're under the dominion of sin. There is no way out. There is no hope of rescue. Not by our might. Not by our power. Could we ever hope of rescuing ourselves? But only by the powerful, purposeful hand of God in Jesus Christ can we be delivered. Can we be redeemed? See, along comes the one with the power to save. And we are delivered and we are redeemed. The picture then adds us truth about being bought. The word redemption and redeem in the New Testament comes from the combination of two Greek words, meaning out of and to buy. Redemption, to redeem, is to purchase back something that's been lost. By the payment of a ransom, to purchase out of. No price we can pay for our salvation because the debt of sin is way too high. The cost is just way too much. We're enslaved to sin. We're bound to sin. We're lost under sin. But God so wants to have a relationship with us, so he provided a way. Since it's impossible to obtain our freedom of sin by our own efforts, somebody else has to do it for us. We have to be redeemed, ransomed. Instead of purchasing it through our own efforts, we are bought with a price. For not with our own merit, not with our own money could we ever redeem ourselves. No, we could never afford the price. We must be ransomed by another. The price of our freedom could only be paid by another. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 7, Paul says that believers were bought with a price. So what's that price? What's the redeeming price? What's the ransoming price for our souls. Jesus himself said, as recorded in Matthew twenty twenty eight, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's the payment price for our freedom, for our redemption, for our ransom? The life of Christ. He gave his life as a ransom, as a, as a payment to purchase us from the slave market of our sin to make us his own. 1 Timothy 2.6 and Titus 2.14 and 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, among other verses, all describe how Christ paid the redeeming price. The ransom for our souls was his precious blood. The price for our salvation was paid by the sacrificial death and the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ redeemed us. He, he bought us out of captivity, shedding his blood as the ransom price for our salvation. The consequence of his purchase of us, the result of his payment, of his rescuing us and ransoming us, is that we are no longer under sin. We no longer belong to sin. We now belong to Christ. 
The ownership of our lives has drastically changed. Sin is no longer our master. Jesus is our master. We're going to dive into the amazing truth of this in greater detail, as Paul does when we get to Romans chapter 6. The reality of our redemption is that we were bought, we were purchased, we were redeemed. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Now think with me for a moment about something about this whole idea of redemption that sometimes we overlook, sometimes we underplay. So often we stress the first part of redemption, and rightfully so. But unfortunately, sometimes we don't stress the second part. We love to talk about and to sing about how how we've been redeemed from our sins and by what means we have been redeemed the sacrifice of our Savior for our sins. We sing redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed by His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. Sing, O sing, of my Redeemer. With His blood He purchased me. On the cross He sealed my pardon, paid the debt and made me free. It's beautiful. It's amazing, and we, we sing about it, and we worship. But that's just the first part. That's just the first truth of redemption. We've not just been redeemed from our sin by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Our redemption doesn't end there. Because, you see, redemption also includes what we've been bought for. When you buy something, you transfer ownership It goes from their possession to your possession. We have been bought from the possession of sin into the possession of Christ. We've been purchased by Christ for Christ, to him, for his service. Jesus didn't purchase us from sin by the payment of his own life so that now our lives can become all about us, so that now our lives can be all about what we want, So now we just keep asking for and demanding God to bless us and expect Him to continue to give to us. No, we've been redeemed from sin, purchased by Christ to be His, for His glory, for His purpose, for His will. We are not our own. We've been purchased. We've gone from servants to sin to servants of Christ. One of Paul's most favorite descriptions of himself is as a servant, as a bondservant, as a purchased slave, willfully serving his Savior. Maybe today we need to see better what we were redeemed for. We sing so wonderfully about what we've been received, redeemed from, right? Our sin. And we should. And we sing so wonderfully about how we've been redeemed by Christ and his blood and his death and his payment. And we should. But let's remember today to whom we've been redeemed to. To whom we've been redeemed for. We are Christ's. He is our Lord. He is our master. It is his will that we long to obey. It is his word that we long to know and follow. We are are his, redeemed from sin, 
by him, for him. What a beautiful and powerful picture of salvation, our redemption in Christ. Well, the next description of our salvation comes from the temple, comes from sacrifice. It's the word propitiation. It's the beginning there of verse 25. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by, by faith. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and then being reconciled to them. Because there is an eternal, unchangeable requirement in the holiness and justice of God, sin must be judged. Sin must be held accountable. Sin must be paid for. God's wrath must be propitiated. Sin has justly offended the holy character of God and his just anger and judgment on sin must be appeased. Propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God by means of an offering. Propitiation means to to atone God's justice and holiness against sin by means of a sacrifice. Listen to this great quote. The, The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, but God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Look there at verse 25. Who is doing the action? It's very important. Who is being appeased and who is doing the appeasing? It's important. Look at it. God the Father is the one who is being appeased. And it is God the Father himself who puts forward his son to be the propitiation by his blood, by his son's sacrifice. God the Father's wrath on sin is appeased by God himself, willingly God giving of his son as our atoning sacrifice. Propitiation is all the work of God. God the Father and God the Son working in unity and purpose and love, doing what only they could do in securing the salvation of mankind. Folks, that's love. God sent His Son to turn away His wrath of sin on us by means of accepting His Son's sacrifice as an offering in our place. That's love. God sent His Son to atone His justice and holiness against sin. By having his son be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Propitiation describes that point at which God's justice and God's righteousness meet their fullness in God's love. Propitiation is where God, out of his love, his desire to love us, substituted his son for us. Where Jesus willingly took upon himself the just punishment of our sins. One wrote, propitiation shows how great God's love is. He could not overlook sin and still be God, but he was willing to go so far as to offer his son in order to appease his wrath against sin. Had his wrath not been appeased, there would be no remission of sins. Thus, by requiring the payment of penalty, God demonstrated how great is holiness and justice. And by providing payment himself, he manifested the extent of his love. 
The cross is a fitting symbol of atonement, for it represents the intersecting of two attributes or facets of God's nature. Here it is that the love of God meets the holiness of God, and the holiness required payment for penalty, and the love provides the payment. See, Jesus was our atoning sacrifice because it's the only way for God to stay 100% consistent in his character, 100% pure and holy and righteous and just and 100% loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving all at the same time. See, only God himself could be the propitiation for himself. For salvation is only and always about what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. But instead, he counted our sins against Christ. Propitiation teaches us that Christ died as a substitute for our sins. Propitiation teaches us that God's holiness required satisfaction and that God's love provided that satisfaction. Propitiation teaches us about the amazing truth of the greatness of God's love. Timothy Keller wrote, The gospel is that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died in your place so that God can receive you, not for your record and for your sake, but for his record and his sake. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins just so that we could love him, just so that we could have a relationship with him. No, it's so much more than that. It's deeper than that. It's more powerful than that. You see, God sent his son as the atoning sacrifice so that when Jesus died on the cross as our substitute for our sins, he did that so that he could have a relationship with us. So that he could love us. So that the God of complete justice and holiness could lavish his love upon unrighteous sinners. Jesus was the atoning sacrifice because it was the only way that he could love us. God wanted to love you so much that he sent his one and only son to atone for your sins so that he could lavish his love upon you. Think about this. Jesus wanted to love you so much that he willingly died on the cross taking the just punishment of your sins so that he could lavish his love upon you. Propitiation. Is God appeasing himself of his just wrath on our sin by means of his son's sacrifice so that he could lavish his love upon us? From the courtroom with justification, from the slave market with redemption, from the temple with propitiation, God is the one doing the saving from start to finish. Our salvation is all about our amazing God securing and providing and offering salvation. What is our response? Faith. Faith is our response. It's all about him. Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing 
Shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full redemption. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, now we have pondered the unponderable. We have tried to describe the indescribable. You. In your justice, in your holiness, in your love, and in your mercy. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Lord, teach us today about you and who you are and your active, first love for us. Not by our hands, not by our works, nothing we could ever do. All of you, so wonderful. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.